I've had several conversations in the past week in regards to this sermon series. The first of which is how exactly did you describe justice to your three and a half year old? And second, how in the world did the worship arts pastor get stuck preaching four weeks on Amos? Well, the answer to the first question, it was something along the lines of um, fixing the things in the world that aren't working the way they should be which I think was actually not as bad of an answer as I could have given. We'll talk a bit more about that next week. But the answer to the second question? Well, it might surprise you that this series has actually been in the plans since January. One of the things that I love uh, as someone who plans the worship services here at City Church is the fact that typically, well before January 1st, we have the entire next year's teaching plan just about finished. Not only that, it's a very collaborative process. So back in November or December, John asked me to plan a four-week sermon series for the 2020 teaching plan. So I took some time, thought of a couple of ideas, and then in January, brought those two ideas to John. And we both agreed that Amos was the way to go. So now you might be wondering, okay, well, why in the world would you choose to preach on Amos? And honestly, I was asking myself the same question in the weeks leading up to this series. And then again, I was asking myself that question in preparation for this week's message. But the reality is, as hard a message it is to deliver, it's one that we need to hear. If you've ever heard me talk about how I approach the planning of our time of gathered worship, then you've heard me talk about the idea that in our gathered worship, we are retelling God's story. We are reminding ourselves that we were created in love to do good, learning to see our imperfections, our, our failures, and our sin, and seeing a God who loves us and forgives us through the sacrifice of Christ. We're not only invited to remember these things, but also then given the opportunity to live out our lives as an act of worship, longing to treat others with the same love and compassion that Jesus showed us so that we might make our community look a little bit more like the kingdom of God, living with the hope that one day Jesus will return and God will fulfill his promise to restore all of creation and make right what has been made wrong. You see, worship is so much more than just the songs that we sing. It's more than the one hour a week we spend doing church. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so over the course of our worship services, you'll see these themes. Creation, brokenness, confession, forgiveness, redemption worked into the context of our weekly worship to remind us, encourage us, and challenge us to live our lives as an act of worship. This is what drew me to want to teach from the prophet Amos. And these are all themes that we find in this prophecy. Today we'll be focusing on chapter 5 of Amos, where God reminds the Israelites that God is on his throne, that it is only in seeking him that they will live. And we'll see these through two themes. The first is a call to repentance, 
in the warning that destruction is coming. And second, of the reminder that mercy is offered, that hope is waiting. Well, you've already heard Michael Weiser read our text for this week. You're certainly invited to open with me to Amos chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 to follow along if you would like. Here's Amos prophesying in this tremendously prosperous land. The economy was booming. The military was strong. Everything was great in Israel. And here comes this poor, low-class, shepherd, fig tree farmer, outsider, lamenting their death. I want us to heed the warning that they ignored. The warning that God is on his throne and it is only if we seek him that we will live. Listen to these words from Amos chapter 5, starting verse 1. Listen to this, family of Israel. This message I'm sending in bold print, this tragic warning. Israel has fallen flat on her face. She'll never stand up again. She's been left where she's fallen. No one offers to help her up. This is the message, God's word. The city that marches out with a thousand will end up with a hundred. The city that marches out with a hundred will end up with ten. O oh, family of Israel. The first thing that we see in our text is destruction is coming. Look how God pictures Israel here. A person taken in the prime of life. That's how Amos describes Israel. Taken in the prime of life, full of potential. The dreams and possibilities of youth, her whole future ahead of her. Her greatest purpose in life was unfulfilled. Unfulfilled because of her destruction. Remember that Amos, when he was giving this prophecy to Israel, Israel was in the height of its prosperity. But in all of their prosperity, they had forgotten the true God. Well, they hadn't really forgotten him. They had just decided to remake God in their own image. They wanted God to be at their beck and call. They wanted God for his blessings. They wanted him to make their lives easy. They didn't want his justice. They didn't want his righteousness. They wanted God to obey them. And because of that, their destruction was imminent. So much so that Amos is reporting it as if it has already happened. He said that in spite of all of her untapped potential, she is fallen and would not get back up. The word that is translated forsaken in verse 2, uh, it's translated forsaken in many of our translations, literally means abandoned, cast away, rejected. It's the same word that's used to describe a field that lays uncultivated, unused, deserted, abandoned, with none to raise her up. Israel would never be fulfilled. Her, prim her primary purpose would never be accomplished. Destruction is coming. But the second point is this, that hope is waiting. Just as God is righteous, he is gracious. His grace is just as much a part of him as is his holiness and perfection. 
even as he laid out the curse after the fall of humanity. In Genesis 3, he makes a promise of grace. And we see this offer of grace extended three times in this text, in verses 4, 6, and 14. I'll start with verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, Seek me and live. Don't fool around at those shrines of Bethel. Don't waste time taking trips to Gilgal, and don't bother going down to Beersheba. Gilgal is here today and gone tomorrow, and Bethel is all show, no substance. So seek God and live. You don't want to end up with nothing to show for your life but a pile of ashes, a house burned to the ground, for God will send just such a fire, and the firefighters will show up too late. Gilgal, Bethel, Beersheba are all places where the Israelites would go for their religious show. But God is not asking for more trips to these houses of worship. Instead, he wants us to seek him, like it says in verses 14 and 15, where it says, seek good and not evil, and live. You talk about God, the God of the angel armies being your best friend. Well, live like it, and maybe it will happen. Hate evil and love good, then work it out in the public square. He wants us to seek him by doing his will, doing the things that our lips speak. Don't just give lip service to the gospel, but live it. Earnestly seek good, godly behavior. Earnestly love God. Earnestly love his people. Work hard to do the right thing according to God's word. God's grace is a gift. A gift that is followed with the good works that he has created us for. Work for the hope that is waiting to come. We'll talk a bit more next week about what that might look like in practice. But first, it starts with confession, both on an individual level and corporate level. All right, whenever you would like to start. In the 1990s, there was a movement called the Reconciliation Walk, and it sparked waves of reaction throughout the world. The effort was concentrated in Europe, Turkey, and parts of the Middle East, and it offered an apology for the Christian Crusades and the atrocities that um, were committed during that era some 900 years prior. As a result of this effort, relationships between Christians, Jews, and Muslims had begun to soften. The apology opened the door for relational healing. The movement also raised questions among Christians, including, do we have the responsibility to make apologies like this? Should Christians today feel any burden for the sins committed by our spiritual ancestors? In many cases, especially in American culture, both in the church and outside of the church, we have lost our sense of corporate responsibility. This isn't a new struggle. Asking, am I my brother's keeper, is a familiar question to God's people that goes all the way back to Scripture. 
But perhaps, especially in a context where individuality reigns and where people identify themselves essentially by their independence, this struggle manifests itself anew in a real and challenging way. Individual and corporate together. As followers of Christ, we should have a strong grasp of our own sin and need to confess. Though we know that Christ died for our sins once and for all on the cross, we also recognize that the ongoing presence of sin has consequences, not just for us, but for those around us. But when it comes to the collective ownership of others' sins and participation in a more corporate confession, many wrestle. I didn't actually commit those sins. Why do I need to confess them? Implicitly, we're asking, is there legitimacy to the idea that sins committed by others or by institutions are my responsibility? Is it important for me to confess corporate sins? Historically, this has been a practice of the Christian church. Christians do need to confess corporate sins for at least a few reasons. First, our participation may not be active or direct, but often we are complicit, at least in simply turning a blind eye. This is why the corporate prayer of confession that is most commonly used includes the petition asking for forgiveness for what we have done and for what we have left undone. Sometimes we sin directly by our actions, and sometimes we sin by doing nothing. Second, we may have more inclination towards such sins than we are ready to admit or are even aware of, and our confession is good for our soul's nurture. Third, it acknowledges the reality that the sin of individuals has corporate consequences. Imperfect people means imperfect institutions and imperfect systems. Fourth, it provides opportunities for reconciliation and healing between groups of people who have experienced historical oppression in history. I briefly mentioned before the reconciliation walk. Certainly none of the Christians involved in this movement were directly involved in the slaughter or oppression that happened during the uh, Crusades. Yet they recognized the ways in which the history of horrible acts done by people in the name of Jesus continued to have a lasting negative impact relationally. What we're seeing here in Amos 5 is a call for both individual and corporate confession. Amos' prophecy isn't just to a handful of powerful individuals who are abusing their power. His words are to an entire nation, a nation who were a people chosen by God to live their lives in a way that reflects God's character, a nation that instead idolized power, Power in its military strength. Power and security in its thriving economy. And it did so at the expense of the weak and vulnerable. Amos' words for the people of Israel 
are words that we need to hear today. And so as we close, we're going to do so by participating together in the practice of confession. I'll lead in a time of guided prayer. And I'll leave some time for silent prayer and reflection. And then I'll invite you to join your voice with mine. Let us pray. God of all ages, who from generation to generation has heard the cries of your children humbly seeking forgiveness and has welcomed sinners back into your embrace, in the silence of this moment, hear the thoughts of our hearts, examine our motives, and forgive us our faults. Now let us pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen.